Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know about a couple things that I think that you'll love. If you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, you will most likely enjoy the Sunday Six. The Sunday Six is a Sunday newsletter that I send out every week, and it includes six interesting things that you can read in under six minutes. You can subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to jaredgrabiel.com. Um, of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe, but I always recommend checking it out. And then two other resources, if you're really into business, leadership, self-help, self-growth, uh, check out the Self-Help Book, which is a book that I published January 17th of this year, and the Self-Help Journal, which is a great practical guide to self-awareness, which is arguably one of the greatest tools of leadership in today's world. Let's dive into today's show. This is the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Grabeel. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Grabeel. And on today's episode, I have Dr. Daniel Hockman. Dr. Hockman is a psychiatrist who has a general practice based out of Austin, Texas, where he sees all kinds of cases but he has a special interest in treating addiction and high performers. As a leader in the addiction field, he has been invited to train and speak for a range of organizations, including Whole Foods and the National Association for Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors, which is the largest organization for addiction-focused healthcare professionals. On today's episode, of course, we're going to talk about a wide range of topics, but specifically, we're going to zone in on addiction and high performers. I'm really excited to get into this topic. Doc, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Jared. Absolutely, man. So uh, let's dive right in. How did you get to where you're at now? It's sort of a question I ask every interview, but if you could tell your story in maybe three to five minutes, mm-hmm. what would it be? Well, the I mean, the, the journey I took was um, I, I thought I loved sort of adrenaline sort of stuff. And I thought, okay, well... Um, and I'm, you know, already cutting to uh, to Act Three here. But you know, I thought, well, I'm going to be an, an ER doc. You know, I, I like the action. I like that high intensity. And uh, and so I, I had been a volunteer firefighter and thought this is my route. You know, this is my calling. And then uh, over time, I think the the brainy part of me took over and said, you know, this is getting old. You know, don't you want to know why this person keeps landing in the ER over and over? or why they were reckless or destructive, or, you know, why don't they follow simple advice? And, um, and so, you know, that, that path is what took me to psychiatry, where I, I was just so excited to be in an area where I could just always be trying to figure that out. And then, uh, and then pushing that further, I think one of the epitomes of that is addiction. It's like, why, why do people do things that are so obviously harmful, you know, and, and we know better, right? We all know better, uh, yet we do things that are destructive. And so it's an interesting topic to me, uh, even outside of addiction, right? Just why do we do anything that's bad for us? It's a, it's a question that I think is just fascinating. And I love um, thinking through, I like uh, helping patients through and, and teaching about, but addiction is, I would just say, the epitome of that. Right. Where, where are you from, Doc? Houston. Okay, so born and raised in Houston. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from reading your bio, I understand you got your undergrad in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. 
um, <laughs> to, to become a doctor, you got to go to like 20 different schools. So I know that you ended up going to Denver. And you, so can you tell me a little bit about that, about your, your education track? Yeah, the, the education for a doctor is, is uh, a lot of years. So, you know, after, after your 12 years of, of grade school, um, it's a, it's another 12. So you got to do, you know, college where you, you know, do some pre-med for me. Um, I was actually interested in some other areas. So I, I didn't do chemistry or biology. You take the requirements you need to, you know, in order to do the pre-med stuff. And then, uh, and so then, uh, from there went to Galveston. So I did UT undergrad Galveston, which is, uh, the oldest med school West of the Mississippi. So it's a big old place. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, did med school there and then did another four years after that to become a psychiatrist. And that was in university of Colorado, Denver. Um, so, so yeah, you know, any doctor you see they've they've done a good, you know, anywhere from yeah. 11 to, to high teens of, of education after, after, uh, high school. So, you know, of all the different avenues you could have gone down in terms of a medical degree, you chose psychiatry and you told us a little bit about that in terms of being a, you know, volunteer firefighter and wanting to be on the ER and then transition to learning why people do the things they do more specifically. Why do we do the dumb things we do? (laughs) Um, Was there like one experience that, that spurred this on? Was it something personal or something that you witnessed or was it just a gradual interest over time? You know, I, most people that do what I do, I'll say, have uh, a very personal experience, not just being around it, but often suffering, you know, with a, a major addiction. And um, uh, I, I don't have, you know, my own long struggle, you know, with alcoholism or something, which, um, which, you know, I, I, I'm not even necessarily proud of. But, um, but you know, I have a, I'd say, fairly typical uh, upbringing, and that you know, a lot of people around me we're experiencing it, people in my family. So, you know, I, I've, I've come as close to it as I would say an average person does. Um, but I'd say what, you know, what was different for me was I, I've just always liked to entertain first principle sorts of questions, you know, not just leaving it at the surface. So, um, you know, there were definitely some patient encounters that I remember shaping, you know, my, my experience and what I would en- end up doing. So, you know, I was there in, you know, rounding in the wards, right? And, and there's people who are there for alcohol-related diseases or one in particular, I remember, who was, you know, on his way to dying in a matter of days. And um, it becomes striking when you talk with these people long enough that you understand the advice that, you know, as a med student, you're told to relay to patients, you know, that alcohol is bad or whatever drug is bad don't do that. You're wasting your money. You're wasting your time. You're ruining your relationships. You're hurting your body. You're going to die sooner. You're going to be in more pain. Like you can relay all the information you want and it has almost zero effect in some cases, you know, the opposite effect to what you want because the other person now just feels more shame, more confused, and, and you've left them worse actually, you know, for all the information that you're sharing. Um, so after doing that enough times, uh, I think that really shaped, you know, what I wanted to do with it. I said, well, if we can't just share information that's obvious, you know, to say, here's how you get better. Um, well, th- we have to do something different or something more. And, 
Um, and that happened with a lot of patients. And, and that still happens with most patients. Yeah. The fact. So where, where did your interest specifically in high performers come about as it relates to addiction? Because of course, people of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds struggle with addiction, but you, you seem to be uh, passionate about high performers. Uh, is there any reason for that? Or is it maybe an underserved population or can you elaborate at all? Yeah, well, I think, you know, most, most people have an easier time accepting certain narratives. So like a narrative of, you know, this person's been abused and, and molested and never had anything. And, and then they stay that way. You know, it's an easier narrative to understand, okay, this person so clearly is just numbing themselves from a, um, from a horrible existence. Um, where I think people then get left dry is, you know, what about all the other narratives out there? You know, there's a lot of people who, whatever their past, you know, they're struggling like hell. You know, they, there are people who are seemingly well or seemingly had, you know, all, all the things given to them to, to be successful, and yet they're not. And, and they have a lot holding them back. And so, yeah, I'd say, you know, in, in some ways, it's, it's just an overlooked set of people who are still struggling. You know, it's, uh, I'm not in the business of, you know, making comparisons. You know, there, there's rich people, there's poor people, there's people that are of all you know, kinds of colors. Uh, to me, it's, it's just to make sure that, you know, people don't get missed. Because there's there's a lot more grants, a lot more programs, a lot more understanding, and even um, you know acceptance in in the world. You know when when it's a really easy to understand narrative, but when it's not, boy, you could really get screwed. So you're saying, uh, and correct me if I interpreted this incorrectly, you're saying that high performers typically get passed over um, when it comes to maybe not passed over, but High performers get overlooked in terms of their addictions because they don't fit the narrative. They're successful, potentially, right. right? So they don't get looked at as like, oh, that's a concern. They do a little bit of drugs here or they drink here and there, but they're crushing it. So like, that's okay. Or Yeah, they can handle it. Yeah, this, yeah, this guy has got enough going, like he can handle it. And, and you disagree, and that's why you're interested in that field because we don't look at it enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, what are some noticeable habits of high performers with addiction? Like how, how can we see that in, in, in the world and in our everyday lives? How do you look for it? Yeah, well, a lot of the times it can be elusive because by definition, you know, someone who's got, you know, uh, you know some high level of performance in some way or another, um, they're also good at, you know, doing several things well. So, you know, if like, like for you, you know, it's, it's working out, but also business and also leadership and maybe spirituality. And so, you know, you're, you're trying to hum along on all cylinders. Um, that's how most high achievers are. You know, there, there's usually just this greater drive to be good at lots of things. And so, well, one of those things is appearing, you know, well-adjusted and, and, you know, you tend to be very good at um, becoming socially accepted and, and well-received. And so, in the effort of doing that, you know, one of the the sort of side effects is that we can brush off, you know, the the problems that we're dealing with, uh, whether that's just personal, emotional, relational, but also with an addiction. You know, it's you know generally come into things with an attitude of 
you know, I'll, I'll be able to get through and figure anything out because like I say, by definition, you're probably the kind of person who does and has, um, whether that's through, you know, what you've studied or how hard you've worked or the risk you've tolerated. Um, but that same attitude, you know, brought to an addiction, um, can be very destructive. So by definition, right, you're, you're going to be dismissing that you really need help or that you really might be in some trouble now, you know, and instead, you know, try and keep pushing. So if you were to have one high performer that doesn't struggle with addiction and have Mm -hmm. another high performer that does, how would you know the difference? You know, what are, what would be a noticeable difference, if anything, in the, the high performer with addiction? Yeah, you, you may not know at all, you know, without a, a really vulnerable, open conversation. And um, because I think they're, they're both probably very good at presenting themselves well. They know yeah. what needs to be presented in the world. I mean, if you're leading a group or you've founded a company, you know what you have to sound and look like. Right. And, and it's not even because you're trying to be fake or deceptive or anything. I mean, there's there's no malice about just, of course, you want to appear to the world like you're an investable person. You know, it's yeah. worth investing people in me or money or giving me time and talent. Like it's you want to show the world that, you know, yeah, you've got me right. You know, I, I am a leader and and I'm a high achiever. I'm, I'm worth following. Um, and so, you know, we're that that that's going to look the same in both cases because of that so it's so it's pretty hard to notice um, <laughs> it is so i read that high achievers are and I, this might have been something that you had written but i read that high achievers are more likely to struggle with addiction why do you think that is yeah i, I mean i think it's it's it, you you always have to be able to admit to yourself and you know, and ask a question honestly, which is like, why? Why am I trying to achieve great heights? And sometimes the origin story for that is very healthy and fine, um, but a lot of the times it's not. Right? I mean, a lot of the times we're trying to achieve great heights um, for unhealthy reasons. You know, because well, you know, one one example of a narrative there might be because you felt, you know very small or not enough or dismissed, mm-hmm. you know, not included, all those kinds of bad things. Well, you know, you may go on with that feeling for for a lifetime, right? And that that can bring about all sorts of behaviors. And um and so you have to be able to honestly ask where what's my origin story? Where where does this energy come from? And um and, and that still can be channeled into goodness, right? I mean, there often is a lot of pain that lives beneath some of the greatest things we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the point, right? We, we have to be able to honestly reckon with that. And, and as we do, figure out the healthiest way to, to sort of ride or navigate the energy that has been created out of our pain. So in short some high performers could be sort of compensating for addictive uh, personality traits with their success. Yeah. You know, and and that's the thing, you know, like where, where are you uh, valuing or where are you deriving the rewards around you? You know, and, and so if, 
you know, if when you're younger, you're not getting it in certain ways. And that's part of why you're, you know, ambitious and wanting to do so much. Um, it's fine to go ahead and then, you know, do rewarding things later. I mean, why, why would you not? Yeah. Um, but you do have to be very careful about where it comes from. And with high achievers, we already know half the story, right? We, we already know there's a lot of energy there and that that person's trying to reach great heights. And you don't know particularly why, and we don't know exactly what height or, or why, but there's something there, right? There, there's some reason they're, they're very driven and they've got a lot of energy behind what they're doing. And so, you know, I don't necessarily call that an addictive trait, but it's certainly a setup, right? That, that you're wanting to get so much out of life that then you need a little bit of enhancing, right? That, that you're trying so hard. Well, that, man, how am I going to wind down in the evening then? Or, well, I'm pretty worn down and I need to come in the office with a lot of energy. Maybe I need an upper, right? Yeah. And, and it could be, you know, lines of Coke, or it could just be a mild stimulant. Um, it doesn't, you know, there, there's different varieties of both of these things, but, um, but that, that enhancement, I mean, we even call like performance enhancers, but, yeah. you know, you could think of a lot of different drugs and addictions as performance enhancers, right? You know, how can we keep pushing ourselves more and more? And that I, I wouldn't necessarily say is an addictive trait. It's just, it's a setup in a high achiever to want to keep pushing. And Would you say that, um, you know, cause we're talking about high achievers, high performers, would you say that performance in and of itself is possibly an addiction? Yeah. You know, I have a pretty broad understanding of, you know, why we're often motivated to do the things we do. And, and there, we have to admit there's always a reward there, even if it's really nice things, even if it's just love right there, there's immense reward felt inside of us with love. And then that story goes on with, you know, there, there's a, a lot of reward with drugs or, you know, other things too. We can try and shortcut that and hit certain neurotransmitters and get a burst of it. But whether it's healthy or not, you know, we, we definitely are rewarded by the way we feel throughout certain acts that come. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, we, the addiction circuit, you know, I teach people is, is not this like separate thing in an addict. The addiction circuit is what's in all of us. And that's what makes us feel like doing whatever it is we set our values at. And so, you know, if you feel rewarded by, you know, people saying good job, or you feel rewarded by sex, either way, you know, you're going to orient yourself to get more of that thing that feels so good. And that's, that's all addiction is, you know, it's just when that goes awry in an area that starts to hurt us more, but right. we're all doing what any other addicts would do. You know, we're, we're just trying to get more of a good feeling. Yeah. Why shouldn't we, you know, that, that, that's how we're built. So I read uh, a long time ago, maybe it was a quote, but it was, we're all addicted to something. Uh -huh. um, you know, we, we usually just give up one thing for another. Um, some people give up drugs for spirituality. Um, some people give up one boyfriend for the next, you know, uh, some people give up one drug for the next and some people give up drugs for success, right? We, we usually trade one thing in for the other because it's really uh, relatively 
impossible to just stop one thing altogether without replacing it with another. Yeah. Um, and that's really just obviously the study of habits and, and habit changing and things like that. So would you say that addiction in and of itself is sort of like a neutral characteristic, just the things that we choose to be addicted to are either good or bad? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, it's less about the object of the addiction. So yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, being addicted to learning or connecting with people, you know, those are rewarding. And if we're being loose in our definition, you know, yeah, and we, and we call that an addiction, then that's a nicer object of the addiction than alcohol. Okay. So that, yeah, you know, that, that doesn't take much uh, thinking through to, to realize, but more so than yes, you know, you can transfer from a, you know, an unhealthy addiction to a healthy one. It's more for me about, um, you know, where it comes from. So there's when, even if let's say, um, let's pick something pretty healthy, like exercise. Okay. The object of that, you know, if we're calling that an addiction, fine, you know, that's way, way better than most other things. Um, but what I pay special attention to is, you know, where does that come from? So if we're using exercise to escape life's problems, even still, okay, fair enough, but that's a different way of meeting your exercise than doing it just for the sake of exercise, which would be a very process oriented thing, you know, just to enjoy the act of exercising, enjoy the act of connecting with the people at the gym, enjoy the act of just always fine tuning and learning and growing, you know, literally and figuratively there. So, you know, that's a process oriented way of meeting that workout. And that's very different than, oh my God, I don't know how to handle myself. I'm so angry with life. I'm so upset with my place in life. I have to go work out because I have no idea what to do with this feeling. Yeah. And just, you know, numb or work your way through it and make yourself so exhausted that, you know, you can live another day. Now, those are, so you see the object is the same in both of those. You're exercising at the gym and it might look the same to get back to your other question too, right? It doesn't look like an addiction in one and not in another. Yeah. But if you talk to that person enough, you start to see if they're between sets and they start fuming about their life. That's a different kind of workout than the other guy who's between sets talking about, well, and I tweaked this here and there. And you see the excitement in their eyes about, you know, the gains they got when they learned yeah. some new strategy. So it could be a good addiction on the surface, but the underlying purpose is unhealthy potentially. Right. Um, it's a lot of, you know, you got to dig and that's yeah. what you do. Right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, what in your experience is the most common form of addiction in high performers? Like it could, is it alcoholism? Is it cocaine? Do you, have you, is there any statistics on that? Yeah, by, by the numbers, it's just, it's going to generally be drinking. Okay. Um, we don't collect great data on what we call process addictions. So, you know, if someone is using exercise, sex, porn, shopping excessively, you know, that we have, you know, a set of things that are only sort of starting to get recognized and measured. So, so it's hard to know by the numbers with that, but, um, but yeah, you know, high achievers definitely, you know, drink, they definitely, you know, cocaine, depending on the circle you're in. Um, and, and yeah, you know, sex and porn too, but, uh, you know, th those are things that they often learn, you know, to kind of manage 
and and present okay still. So a lot of times they are things that are only known behind closed doors. You might think they're a heavy drinker, right? You know, you might see them drinking a lot, but you don't necessarily know it's a problem for them. Yeah. You don't know, like we, we were just talking about, you don't know why can't they get through a day without drinking? You know, is this recreational and just business or is this a lot of, you know, because there's a lot of pain there. Yeah. Doc, I know you're trying to change as many lives as possible by publicly talking about more accurate and effective ways of understanding emotional health and the habits that are holistic and easy to grasp. So mm-hmm. what, what are some of those holistic ways to treat addiction um, that you're referencing? Uh, one of the sort of recommendations I'd make to most people is, you know, you don't need to make the, the actual, you know, addiction that you're suffering through, um, you know, the, the entire uh, focus of a treatment. So, and when I say treatment, it could be formal treatment, you know, with someone like myself, but it can also just be the books you're reading, the people you're listening to, just other things you're doing to grow or learn around that area. And so you don't need to go, you know, if, if you feel like, okay, I drink too much. So then I've got to read a bunch of books about alcohol. Uh, odds are that unless you're reading, you know, a really good book or reflecting in just the right way about it, um, you're probably better off just addressing you know where that's coming from which might be just a, a good psychotherapist yeah or or you know a retreat or you know something that you do to dig in and see you know where is this coming from um so that would be one thing you know is that i see people um get distracted by just you know the behavior itself and, and then end up just chasing that and not not actually doing you know the full work that's needed that uh, that really takes care of it in the end. Um, so that that'd be one of the simpler sort of ways of suggesting people think about it, you know, okay. in a holistic way. The you know, there's a lot in, of literature and studies coming out about uh, MDMA and psilocybin being treatments for things like post traumatic stress disorder and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen? And it seems kind of unusual to use a drug to, to get yeah. well. But I have read a little bit about that treating addictions as well, because of course we know that addiction isn't about the drug necessarily, but about something inside of us, um, which is similar yeah. to depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think that um the narrative of you know you're trading one drug for another, you know, so if I start an antidepressant in someone. Or there are a couple great medications we use for addiction. For example, if people haven't heard of antabuse or naltrexone, you know, those are medications we use for drinkers. And so, um, you know, one of those will make it so that you react really badly when you drink. So, you know, people like taking antabuse in the morning and they know they can't slip up later in the day. Um, and, and the other one helps to reduce cravings. So, you know, those... So it's it's foolish, right, to say that you're just replacing one drug or you know habit with another when it's under medical supervision and you know it's a quite deliberate process and we know the side effects and it's controlled amounts and all that. Um, yeah. So same thing with this, right? You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of history behind you know how things that are called you know psychedelics or MDMA. Uh, have come to be illegal and lumped in, you know, with, with all the other bad stuff, but you know, that they're all different, you know, uh, 
you know, marijuana is very different from heroin, which is very different from fentanyl, which is very different from, you know, Oxycontin, which is very different from then every other class. You know, they're, they shouldn't all be lumped together. Uh, I'm really happy to see uh, that things like MDMA or psilocybin are actually being legitimately studied. Um, and, and, you know, the results are looking pretty good with them. Uh, we're still a little ways from seeing, you know, the exact frequency of use that's best, the exact dosing, um, exactly how we should be curating that experience. Can that be done, you know, in a home environment safely or should it always be under supervision? There's there's different aspects to that, you know, that are still needed to formalize it into treatment. But we're on our way to doing that. And I have zero doubt those are going to prove over time to, to be promising. I mean, we already have good preliminary kinds of studies. Um, it's short of being able to say right now, you, you know, two thumbs up, go do it. Um, we need to know exactly how many people have side effects. You know, some, some people are having bad experiences from those. So uh, we need to know, you know, who's going to have the bad experiences, what dose do we start at? So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I'm all for studying these things and not just being, you know, blanket against anything that's ever been illegal yeah and i full disclaimer for the audience uh do your research into this um these are most importantly they're guided experiments so there's a therapist present when they're doing the psilocybin or the mdma it's not just uh a you know um a psychiatrist giving them a prescription for mdma mm-hmm. or psilocybin or anything like that so it's totally different than traditional medicine people definitely need to look into that before they yeah. get any ideas um okay so i want to sort of pivot here to some business and leadership questions some more lighter-hearted questions um in your opinion doc what what makes a good leader uh, or or even a good high performer what would be one to three character traits that that you look for in somebody that's a healthy high performer? Yeah, I, I think that the best leaders and high performer, I mean, I, you know, I think whenever you are a high performer, high achiever, um, you're also sort of saying you're a leader. Right? I mean, you're, you're, you're either leading a cause or leading people, leading a product, you're, you're leading something. And so Whenever we lead, uh, I think we need to be clear in our minds about what we're trying to embody. Um, so that comes out of our values, but it's also often, you know, related to our our greatest mentors or greatest minds that we've come across. Whether it's something we read, it could be a grandparent, could be, you know, uh, you know, a, a live person, dead person. You know, wherever we're getting that, we have to usually understand, you know, where, where's that coming from and what am I trying to embody? Usually it is something a little more than human and, and that's okay. You know, we're usually trying to embody something that's greater than any one person could really do, you know, that I'm pulling from this person who is just so patient and nice. And I'm pulling from this person who always goes after their dreams. And I'm pulling from this other person who's got the grit that I want, you know, and, and we, and we wrap it all together. And the the best leaders I come across, um, they, they embody as much of this hero archetype as possible. Um, but then here's the other part, you know, at the same time are very willing to share exactly what they're experiencing as they try and do that. 
um, at the you know appropriate time and place yeah. and person. But you know, if you're leading people, you know, to you know, not not only say I'm I'm this hero, watch me, but you're saying, yeah, I tried to be a hero there. I got slayed though on that last business meeting or that sales call or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I screwed that one up. And you just show that thought process, right? And that's that's a way of showing people not just that we're fallible and you know that you know it, it's not to be done as a virtue signal that oh I'm so humble and oh I don't have all the answers. Instead, what you're actually doing, you're teaching people and you're trying to provide another hero figure for them, um, and that's the mythical part. But at the same time, you're trying to show people here's how I do this. The way I do this is that every single time I reach a failure, it's okay to ask, how did that happen? Do I need to learn something else? Do I need to reread something else? Do I need to ask people what I was missing? You know, to, so to show that is, um, is to set, you know, uh, you know, a very universally great example of what a leader does, which is, you know, they're still open. They have a lot of answers. You better have a lot of answers if you're leading people, but you don't have all of them. And it's not just a fake, oh, I don't know everything. It's a real one. Yeah. I really don't know, guys. And so try to be like me, but also realize that, you know, none of us are infallible. And so um, when you've got people under you or around you who who you're training to be the same, I mean, now you've got an army. What if you is really a two part question? Um, if you could recommend one book to someone struggling with addiction, what would it be? And if you could recommend another book to a general audience, maybe your favorite book, what would they be? Uh, the first one would probably be a book by Gabor Mate, who has a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And um, I think he does one of the best jobs I've ever seen of, of someone um, making these connections and, and helping to normalize addiction, not normalize it because, you know, whoa, there's so much addiction in the world, but normalize it. Like this is just a human experience. You know, we, we, we all have our forms of suffering and sometimes it comes out this way. So relating that, you know, to, to the pains that we deal with in life and not just, addictions addiction and you have some weird brain pathway and it's gone awry um boy in general for a book i i don't know you might have stumped me there <laughs> um your favorite book you know i i draw a blank i i i i'm an anecdotal person when i put together just kind of like we're saying right like they're you know for me i think more of the people i've come across than than the books um and and to me you know it's it's about piecing together what we think is the best possible way to exist in the world um yeah boy i yeah i mean that's an interesting take on uh on the response but i'm sure i'm sure it'll make sense to a lot of the audience everyone um you know, perceives and learns differently. Yeah. One, and I hate, you know, to be, you know, frustrating in a response with not having one, but the, you know, I guess what I might be trying to say is that in keeping with what I just said, you know, I wouldn't want to 
concentrate my effort in any one area because if I'm going to put together the best person that I can, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to recognize that it's going to come from many dozens of people and I'm piecing together a lot. And, uh, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody should ever stop trying to put together what that is for them. I have two more sort of rapid fire questions. First one is what's the best purchase you've made in under a hundred dollars in the past six months? Man. Well, under a hundred, I think there, there's a, there's a pen I got. It's a, it's a very, very regular pen that, that, you know, costs less than a dollar, but it it was a pen very special to me because it was around a connection that I made with my brother. And so, um, Every time I use that pen, you know, it's, it's, it's got a special connection and, and meaning yeah. to it. I love that, man. And a stupid little pen, you know. Yeah, it doesn't have to be anywhere near 100 bucks to be special. No, no. Um, um, and sorry, what was the other one? If you could put anything on a big blank billboard over the busiest intersection, busiest road you know of, what would the billboard say? It would say something like, you're okay. I love you know, it. It's, it's just, you know whatever you're dealing with, it might, yeah, maybe you messed up and this and that. And you read, you're okay. And you're thinking, no, I'm not okay. And oh, that that billboard doesn't know how messed up I am or how evil I've been. I've done things that I even knew I did even before and during. And still I'd say, you know, you're okay. It's, you know, you just, you just do what you can to get better. That's how you owe it back to the world. You're okay. Yeah. Well, Dr. Daniel, I appreciate your time today, and uh, I'm sure our audience does as well. How can they learn a little bit more about what you do or maybe find some information on you? Yeah, so, you know, if, if anyone's in Texas, I do have a practice um, and, and you know, treat all kinds of people. Um, if, if you're anywhere else, then I have a program called Self-Recovery, and it's at selfrecovery.org. And it's a way people can just directly access all the greatest approaches to use to deal with addiction in the broad sense, right? I mean, some people are in there with really hard addictions, other people, really vague ones, but they understand that they're kind of running from things and uh, they want to slow that down and get mastery. So selfrecovery.org is a way to access, you know, a whole curriculum around this stuff. Sweet. And we will put those that link in the show notes for the audience. So just make sure you scroll down and you'll be able to find that again, Dr. Daniel, I really appreciate you joining us today. uh, And I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon, but until then, thank you. You're welcome. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, I have a couple asks of you. Number one, if you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, I highly recommend you checking out The Sunday Six. Uh, The Sunday Six is a newsletter that I send out every Sunday with six interesting things that should take you about six minutes or less to check it out, unless you decide to go on one of the rabbit holes of the links that I include in the email. It's definitely worth checking out. And of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe. You can check out The Sunday Six by uh, looking in the show notes. There's a link there or going to jaredgrabiel.com and subscribing. Additionally, 
Of course, January 17th, I published my first book, The Self-Help Book. And if you enjoy the content in the Business and Leadership Podcast, you'll most likely enjoy the book. You can read it in under two hours. It's very applicable, extremely practical. You can pick up one chapter and apply it to your life, or you can read the whole thing. Um, The self-help book can be found at Amazon.com or anywhere online that books are sold. And last but not least, the self-help journal. Of course, if you enjoy the book, you'll love the journal. It's a practical way to apply some of the steps to your life. Um, Self-awareness is a huge tool in business and leadership. And journaling, whether you use mine or anybody else's, is going to be the best step you can take towards gaining self-awareness. So I recommend checking that out. Just search the self-help journal Jared Grabiel on Amazon.com. It's currently for sale for $9.99. And again, if you enjoy the show, please do two things. Refer it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks again. Much love and God bless.